Nicolas Bournois of Capitaling, I would like to welcome you to uh, another uh, panel session. This one is on regulation and policy, uh, developments and the outlook. We have with us a stellar panel, uh, top level panel, and uh, I will let uh, John Imhoff, uh, partner and shareholder at Better Price, uh, who's going to moderate the discussion to introduce our panelists. What I would like to say to all of you uh, is a big thank you for uh, joining uh, the panel and uh, contributing to make the forum a great success. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, I'm John Imhoff. I'm a shareholder in the New York office of Vetter Price, which is an international law firm with offices in the US, London, and Singapore. I also happen to be the co-head of the Maritime team here. I am delighted to be moderating this panel on regulation and policy in the Jones Act and US flag. Uh, we have with us some very distinguished panelists, uh, and it's an excellent opportunity to hear their views on both regulation and policy. Uh, there's a lot to discuss, um, but let me first introduce the panelists. With us, um, I'm not sure where she appears on your screen, but on my screen, she's in the top left corner. Uh, Susan Allen, Vice President and General Counsel, uh, Corporate Secretary of uh, Overseas Shipholding Group, OSG. Uh, Ms. Allen joined OSG in 2016. She's had a career in public and private sectors. Welcome, Susan. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Everybody, I think, knows OSG, but please tell us. Thanks, John. Um, in addition to those, uh, those other titles I hold, I'm also the Director of Government Relations and Communications at OSG. Um, OSG is a member of the American Maritime Partnership um, and also a founding member of the Florida Maritime Partnership. Um, both of those organizations focused on Jones Act companies. Thank you, Susan. Um, also, please join me in welcoming Marcus Jadot. Uh, who's with uh, Crowley Maritime. He is Senior Vice President of Government Relations. He's had a very distinguished career in uh, government and uh, uh, public affairs. Uh, uh, welcome, Marcus. Please please tell us a little bit about yourself. Everyone, of course, knows Crowley, but go ahead. Thanks, John. Really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and, and the group also want to extend uh, a thanks to Nicholas and his team for the uh, for the invitation. I'm Marcus Jadot is, as he said, uh, Vice President Government Affairs for Crowley. Uh, Crowley, as uh, many of you may know, is a diversified transportation and logistics company uh, based here in Jacksonville, Florida. We're also uh, a member of AMP and the Florida Maritime Partnership. Uh, proud to be one of uh, uh, of the team, team members here at Crowley, joining, I joined the company uh, earlier this year. Uh, Crowley employs uh, in excess of 4,500 American Mariners, the largest employer of American Mariners, and has um, committed more than uh, $3 billion in uh, American-built uh, vessels. Um, again, really excited to be a part of the conversation today and, and happy to be a part of the maritime industry here in the U.S. Uh, thank you, Marcus. Also joining is Joe Macenti, from, uh, uh, who's the General Counsel and Chief Ethics Officer at TOTE. Welcome, welcome, Joe. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. Um, <clears throat> like the others, TOTE is also a member of AMP and the Florida Maritime Partnership. In terms of my background, uh, prior to TOTE, um, 
I held in-house positions at seafood companies in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, before that, I was a maritime attorney in private practice, as well as earlier at the US Department of Justice and in the Navy as a JAG Corps officer. <clears throat> I think many of you know about Tote, uh, but just a, a little bit of background. Um, we are a Jones Act carrier with twice weekly container service between Jacksonville and San Juan and between Tacoma and Anchorage. Um, of particular note, we have pioneered the use of LNG in the maritime industry, introducing the first ever LNG powered container vessels in the Puerto Rican trade, operating the first ever LNG bunker barge in support of those vessels since 2018, and currently overseeing the conversion, the first ever conversion of our Alaska trade vessels to LNG power. Uh, one other thing to note um, is our subsidiary company, Tote Services, is the vessel construction manager, or BCM as it's called, for the construction of the new national security multi-mission vessels, NSMVs they're called, that are being constructed at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard for MARAD. Uh, these vessels will be owned by the federal government, um, but loaned to state maritime academies to train the next generation of U.S. mariners. This VSM, VSM concept is new, and it's uh, the idea of incorporating um, best commercial practices in government shipbuilding. So there's a lot of interest in this in the future. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Last and certainly not least, Matt Woodruff, uh, who's Vice President of Public and Governmental Affairs, has had a distinguished career at Kirby, um, also has been a maritime lawyer in private practice. Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself. Again, I think we all know Kirby, but please do tell. <laughs> well, as you said, I uh, practice maritime law, representing primarily ship owners for 20 years before joining Kirby 18 years ago. Uh, where I've been in, uh, in this position, uh, looking out for the advocacy interest of the company. Very active in uh, the various maritime trade associations. Uh, American Maritime Partnership has been mentioned. I'm a, a past chairman of that organization and uh, very active in uh, uh, advocacy roles uh, for the industry. Thank you, Matt. Welcome to you all. Uh, let's get right into it. I think all of you are representing Jones Act companies. Um, uh, for, for those of you who heard Charlie's very excellent presentation on Jones Act and uh, U.S. Flag 101, we have a general idea of what the Jones Act is. Um, but since this is the policy and regulation po uh, panel, maybe we can talk a little bit about the policy of the Jones Act because uh, a lot of there are a lot of people with diverse and um, very strong interests in the Jones Act. Um, but to hear a little bit about what it's, why it's there and what it does um, would be helpful, I think. Marcus, maybe you can start us off with that. Thanks, Sean. Um, I think I'd describe the, the, the reason, the purpose of the Jones Act in, in three categories. Uh, certainly uh, national security. Uh, and I think uh, today more than ever, uh, the need for um, uh, guaranteeing and supporting uh, American sovereignty is uh, both uh, front of mind and on the front pages. Uh, homeland security, um, 
ensuring that uh, uh, the United States uh, has oversight of uh, our uh, domestic waterways, and then finally, uh, economic securities. Um, in addition to the economic activity that all of our companies participate in, the Jones Act creates hundreds of thousands of American jobs um, and uh, billions of dollars in uh, economic activity. So across those three uh, domains, the Jones Act is uh, remains uh, uh, highly relevant and uh, a necessary policy that has been in place now as a public policy uh, of the United States well before the Jones Act itself, uh, uh, now for uh, over 200 years, uh, cabbage in, in the maritime space has been uh, the policy of, of the United States. Just, you, you mentioned national security and how is it that, I mean, it may seem obvious to us, but for those in the audience, how is it that the Jones Act supports <clears throat> Uh, national security. Um, anyone want to kind of chip in on that? Go ahead, sure. Joe. Go ahead. Yeah, I just, as, as you said, John, it's, it's obvious to us. And, um, you know, clearly there are this fleet of Jones Act vessels out there that are readily available to the U.S. military in the time of need. So it, it creates another um, support mechanism in terms of sea lift capacity uh, that's readily available to the government. You have uh, US built ships that are crewed by citizens, US citizens. Um, and uh, you know, that, that, that capability uh, is, is tremendous rather than relying on a, a foreign country's vessels uh, for, for surge reasons. Um, what, what about, um... <clears throat> Is it not sort of a subsidy in a sense for uh, keeping U.S. as a pool of trained merchant mariners uh, who are citizens plus um, a pool of skilled yard workers who can assist um, our naval forces uh, if called upon to, to, to work on uh, and construct naval vessels as well? Well, I think the people part is a huge part of it, and there's no subsidy associated with that. Uh, you know, the government does not pay a dime to uh, domestic operators for uh, uh, having a uh, cadre of merchant mariners, uh, nor does it uh, you know, pay anything to, to keep American shipyards operating. If, if you think about the fact that we have a reserve fleet of ships that are uh, tied up around the United States, that uh, are supposed to be ready to go to uh, handle national defense needs, what those crews are missing or what those ships are missing are crews. And so the domestic maritime industry provides a cadre of people that can be mobilized. So even if the vessel they work on on a, a daily basis may not be militarily useful, the personnel uh, have the skills to transition to those militarily useful vessels and be ready to go. And uh, so uh, I, I think what we have as a consequence of having a strong domestic fleet is the ability to have this concept of reserve ships that aren't manned, that are, are ready to, to meet uh, uh, the national defense interests. Plus, as, as was stated, 
we have uh, among the Jones Act fleet a number of militarily useful vessels that could be redirected towards uh, national defense needs. Yeah, and you can see those, uh, you can read about the uh, Ready Reserve Fleet on the Maritime Administration webpage, uh, where they're located, what they're doing. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you make a good point, I think, Matt, that it's, it's, it's really to provide support for those vessels as well, um, or mariners to operate those vessels when needed. Um, are there other con contingency, are there other constituencies, I should say, that have an interest in, in the Jones Act? <clears throat> Those seem to be the primary ones, I suppose. Um, well, from a Jones national Act security aspect, but, uh, you know, from an economic security aspect, I think we don't need to look any further than the recent supply chain issues that have really jammed up the international container uh, market and you, you hear of all the issues of uh, cargo not getting where it needs to go, you haven't had those same problems in the, the domestic trades and in particular the, the non-contiguous trades that uh, are absolutely essential to put groceries on the shelves in, uh, in places like uh, Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, those services have uh, continued on without interruption and uh, without significant uh, change in cost uh, as uh, the international rates have, uh, you know, mushroomed and uh, we see ships lined up, uh, you know, waiting to, to get in. So I think part of that economic security uh, argument that, that Marcus referred to is uh, the, the security and the surety that uh, our citizens in non-contiguous areas uh, receive from uh, reliable Jones Act service. And I would, I would uh, echo that with uh, Matt saying that the kind of the security that you have, the, the reliability uh, OSG is, is in um, oil transportation um, and we have mostly tankers. And now we have a situation going on with uh, Russia and U the Ukraine that's going to disrupt that and it's causing oil prices uh, to be hugely volatile. And um, our, our ships and our industry related to oil supply in the U.S. and the ability to transport it is reliable and, uh, and there and present um, in this kind of reacting to these kind of crisis situations. And I would, I would add that another beneficiary are the remote communities that rely on the Jones Act. You know, it can't be emphasized enough that uh, they, are, they are reliant uh, for goods from vessels and the Jones Act has provided that reliable, committed service. And uh, on top of that, the substantial investments, as Marcus mentioned, into the trade into the vessels, into the terminal facilities to provide, you know, the best service possible to these local community, remote communities. And, and looking at recent developments, I mean, within the last year or year and a half uh, around the Jones Act, I can think of a few, <clears throat> not limited to the recent amendments to the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, extending U.S. law um, and including the Jones Act to uh, renewable energy installations on the Outer Continental Shelf, uh, resolving a long-standing ambiguity that had been there um, uh, when 
when the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act was uh, written and subsequently amended, primarily with the intention of applying to offshore oil and gas and the uh, Mac Thornbury National Defense Authorization Act for 2021, a little, very, very much at the back of the act was included this provision uh, amending the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act again to make it more clear that it applies to renewable energy. The increased enforcement that we've seen in the third proviso uh, specifically, um, uh, indicating somewhat of an increased willingness by the Customs and Border Protection to enforce the Jones Act, and recent action by the Biden administration to create a separate um, uh, made, in America, made in America executive order to create a separate Made in America office, one of the purposes of which, and just one of them, is to expedite requests for waiver, Jones Act waivers, when in the interest of the national defense and uh, when there are no other coastwise or Jones Act vessels available. All of this seems to indicate um, uh, the current administration, at least, uh, and 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 the government is well behind the Jones Act. <clears throat> is the strong is the Jones Act as strong as ever? Uh, I don't think it is as strong as ever. I think it's stronger than ever. I think that uh, uh, you know this administration and this Congress, uh, uh, the the level of support of the Jones Act is stronger than it's ever been. Well Susan, said, Matt. Yeah, and Susan, what do you what do you say? I, I was going to say the uh, there's there's multitude of things you listed off uh, and summarized. John showed that that is in fact the 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 direction we've got a very strong Jones Act support, and we've got very specific actions happening that continue to show the strength of the Jones Act and show that it's it's going to be in, enforced and implemented, and uh, as uh, supported as much as possible with for our future. And, and you know, in, in looking at the Made in America executive order, I think that was back in, two, that was last year. Um, at first, first blush, it looks as if uh, this is bad for the Jones Act because it makes it easier, facilitates uh, getting a waiver. Um, <clears throat> but as you look at it a little bit more closely, I think um, the mere fact that the process for getting a, a waiver for the Jones Act, as difficult as it already is, um, can now is now somewhat centralized in the Made in, made in America office. Doesn't really it actually suggest that the Jones Act is 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 um, is an important part of American U.S. policy. Uh, and the fact that you're getting in a waiver <clears throat> and can get one more not more easily, but there's a process for it would suggest that the substance of the Jones Act is 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 um, not at all under threat. Would, would, uh, and, is that and your read of it? <laughs> and John, I would actually say that um, the activity around the waiver process has made it, um, and, and I'll say recent, recent history has made it actually much more difficult to get a waiver and made that more explicit. Um, a kind of a brief, uh, brief and more recent history. It was relatively uh, easy, I'll say, to get a waiver just a few years ago and a blanket waiver um, just by someone saying, "I oh, I need to do something um, in, in reaction to, I'll use the situation of a hurricane. 
as a kind of a typical place where waivers were requested. <coughs> Hurricanes coming, um, I need a waiver of the Jones Act. Um, without much thought about um, why and whether the waiver would actually be useful to solve the crisis and to solve the problems that were happening. And what was then being issued is what we call blanket waiver. And a blanket waiver is, is harmful because it, it, uh, it just basically says for whatever period of time the waiver is in place, the Jones Act doesn't apply to anything. And so people were making shipments uh, under their waivers that had nothing to do with solving the crisis themselves. Is, is that right? So in, in, the, in, the, in the context of Hurricane Maria in 2017, um, uh, when um, the, uh, the Jones Act was waived, I believe under the Trump administration uh, for the purposes of facilitating the delivery of relief supplies to Puerto Rico, which was hit pretty hard. Did that actually apply to um, transportation of materials merchandise not at all related to uh, relief efforts in Puerto Rico, or was it just limited to anybody and anyone who could deliver those relief efforts, uh, non-US flag vessels to uh, non-Jones Act qualified vessels to, to Puerto Rico? Well, one of the pieces that was, I'll, I'll use the word missing from that equation was um, whether the transportation was the issue, uh, the, the uh, maritime transportation was the issue versus the issue really being that the ports and the infrastructure within Puerto Rico were not able to actually accept shipments and distribute them into the country. So um, that has been kind of identified as the focus really, we need to look at what's gonna be the issue in the time of the crisis is the focus that there isn't maritime transportation available, or is it that the infrastructure where the materials need to go needs to be supported? Okay. Let me just turn really briefly before I move on to some of the other Jones Act related <clears throat> and US flag uh, regulation. Uh, some of those who would attack the Jones Act have done so under a number of different, using a number of different arguments, um, including you know, in, in efforts either to repeal the act or uh, to, to suggest that territories that are currently subject to the act as, as, as territories subject to the coastwise laws uh, should be ex excluded in much the way that Virgin Islands and American Samoa are excluded from the application of the Jones Act. And those who attack it, and I only know because I read every, every time there seems to be, the Jones Act seems to come into um, focus uh, in connection with it. an emergency. There, there are some criticism. It's often called protectionism in another form. Um, it increased transportation costs generally. And with the, with the burden of those transportation costs falling mostly on territories and states who depend in large part on transportation uh, of merchandise by sea, including Puerto Rico and Hawaii and to some extent Alaska. Uh, and why can't the Jones Act be more like uh, the commercial aviation space, in particular 
you, <laughs> I flew a Delta flight the other day that was, um, it was an A320. Uh, it was obviously not a U.S. built um, aircraft. Um, <clears throat> why does it have to be U.S. aircraft? What do you say to people who have those criticisms? And what is your response? Um, Marcus, maybe you can give us, a, give us your view. Thanks, John. Uh, I'll begin by saying that uh, it's not a new question. And a number of studies have been conducted around the Jones Act's impact on transportation costs. And consistently, uh, those studies have, have found that uh, there is no linkage between the Jones Act uh, trade and increased costs uh, in the non-contiguous contiguous markets. Um, shipbuilding uh, and uh, aircraft uh, manufacturing, pretty significant uh, differences uh, between uh, the, the process for developing uh, uh, vessels and uh, that uh, for aircraft. And the U.S. is in a substantially different position uh, with respect to the aviation industry than uh, we are with uh, vessel manufacturing. Uh, it is incredibly important that we maintain the ability, the independence uh, to uh, construct vessels in the United States and the Jones Act supports that. Uh, in the absence of uh, the Jones Act, it's likely that the subsidies that uh, foreign governments lavish on uh, shipbuilding in their home markets uh, would displace manufacturing in the United States. Um, that's the reality. Uh, it's not a, 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 an academic exercise. The reality is that uh, China and Korea, South Korea and Japan have uh, lavish subsidies on manufacturing ships in, in their home markets. Uh, the Jones Act ensures that we remain uh, a, a fully capable um, maritime nation. And one aspect of, of that capability that we need in the United States is the, the ability to manufacture ships here, uh, both in peacetime and certainly uh, in, in time of war. Uh, that's not a capability that we would be able to stand up uh, in, in weeks. What about those critics who, and I saw this just the other day, <laughs> uh, what about the critics who say <clears throat> building a destroyer is very different from, and requires a completely different set of skills than building a product tanker, uh, or a container ship. Uh, and that while we think we're actually, <clears throat> serving the national defense by um, giving uh, U.S. shipyards work um, or incentivizing work uh, for U.S. shipyards. In fact, it's, uh, the, the skills are not transferable to military uh, vessels. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, happy to start. Um, I, I think uh, there are active examples around the world where that uh, criticism falls apart, uh, where 
uh, commercial vessels are being manufactured in the same shipyard uh, as um, as military um, um, uh, vessels. Uh, and again, I would point to the China example um, that uh, is front of mind for many uh, defense policymakers at, at, at this point in time. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, moving away from the criticisms against the Jones Act, I think you've made good, all of you made good arguments as to why uh, these, some of these criticisms miss the mark uh, in terms of um, their, in, in terms of what the Jones Act is there to do. Um, we turn it around a little bit more and ask the question, we've talked about how the Jones Act is stronger than ever. Uh, thank you, Matt, for that observation. Um, is the other half of the Jones Act is enforcement because it's one thing to have a policy and it's one, th one thing to have uh, uh, statutes on the book, on the books to, to, to um, like the Jones Act, but if the Jones Act won't work unless it's sufficiently um, and adequately enforced. Are Customs and Border Protection and the Coast Guard doing enough to enforce the uh, Jones Act or should more be done? Anyone want to take that one? <laughs> I, I think they're doing more than they've ever done in the past. Uh, there's now the Jones Act, uh, I think they call it Division of Enforcement. They call it JADE. And, and that is a funded uh, organization dedicated to uh, uh, not only enforcement of the Jones Act, but also I think they have an educational function where they go to the different uh, uh, folks who are in the, uh, the field offices to, to explain to them what the Jones Act is, how it works, what the law is, so that uh, it makes those field agents better able to recognize potential Jones Act issues. So uh, I do think that while we've always had you know, certainly there's the law and you would expect that uh, uh, the government enforce it. I think we're, we're now being more thoughtful about the enforcement uh, and actually uh, providing funding for the folks who, who are doing that enforcement. I think that's a good, good observation. Thank you, Matt. Um, let me turn a little bit away from the Jones Act, if I may, unless someone has some further observations I'd like to get into cargo preference and some of the voluntary programs that are uh, apply to US flag and in some cases US built vessels um, and see what thoughts you have on these. They include cargo preference rules um, and those really have two parts. Um, the military cargoes and US agency cargoes, that's the law that um, it's described in our previous uh, laws or set of laws in a previous um, discussion or previous presentation that um, uh, require a certain amount of U.S. government uh, cargoes to be carried on U.S. flagships. Um, also want to touch a little bit on voluntary programs like the Maritime Security Program, the new Tanker Security Program, which was mentioned, um, and what it intends to do. Uh, you know, maybe Title 11, which came up as well, uh, America's Highway Program, and if anybody had any thoughts about it, the 
Capital Construction Fund. But maybe I start with, um, let's start first with, with the um, cargo preference rules. Um, uh, what purpose do they, do, do, they, do they serve? I mean, is it again, sort of the same purposes and policies that are behind the Jones Act? <clears throat> Anyone want to take that? <laughs> Matt, maybe I can ask you. Well, I think what those do, you know, the cargo preference rules apply to international commerce. So they really have nothing to do with the Jones Act uh, other than uh, perhaps by uh, uh, analogy. But it's another way that uh, we uh, help ensure that we have a healthy U.S. flag fleet, in this case, the international fleet, by reserving government cargoes to, uh, to U.S. flag ships. It ensures that they have uh, the employment that they need to, to be available uh, in the national emergency. And uh, I, I think we've seen throughout history, there, there's a reason we want U.S. flagships uh, available. And that is, you know, the, the old saying, these colors don't run. When, when things get tough, when there is a, a threat, uh, we find that a lot of foreign flag vessels simply won't come load ammunition and take it to a war zone. And to go back to, to your comment about, you know, the, can a shipyard build a destroyer uh, and uh, a merchant vessel? I want to point out that uh, our forces deployed overseas don't get their fuel. They don't get their ammunition. They don't get their hardware from destroyers. They get them from merchant ships. And so you can have all the destroyers you want, but the real reason you have destroyers is to protect the merchant ships that are delivering the forces to the uh, theater of conflict so that we can prosecute our national priorities. So uh, I think that the ability to build uh, rows, tankers, container ships, and other types of merchant vessels is absolutely as vital to our national defense as is the ability to build a destroyer. That's a good point. And, 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 and that goes to something we were discussing and Marcus addressed earlier. Um, all, all very good. Uh, what, what about the, uh, I'm cognizant of the amount of time we have left, what about the voluntary programs like MSP and the new tanker security program uh, uh, designed to provide make vessels available to the Department of Defense for the transportation of, of, of the goods and materials required by armed forces uh, in times of need uh, and conflict uh, or to serve uh, in, the, in the case of emergencies. Um, Susan, maybe you can tell us a little bit about MSP and more particularly since it applies uh, to OSG or would apply, could apply to OSG, the, the new tanker security program. Yeah, sure. Um, the maritime uh, security program uh, has a lot of vessels. It does have two tanker ships in there that are OSG's tanker ships. We've been participating in the MSP for many years. Um, and um, the tanker security program has been authorized by Congress and it's just awaiting appropriations, which uh, will 
frankly, I believe that's going to be coming imminently to be authorized. And then that will be put into place under the tanker security program. It's modeled just like the maritime security program. Uh, and it would uh, fund 10 tanker ships to be uh, available uh, to, uh, to the national defenses. And um, both of those programs are subsidized. There is a, a, a stipend that participants are able to receive. Um, and, can, and going back to um, the comments about the cargo preference laws um, and some of the comments that Matt made, in order to keep the, uh, the ships that are in these, uh, these programs and TSP, the upcoming program, going, it's, it's a combination of things that need to happen um, to make them economically viable. Um, you need to have other business um, outside of uh, participating in the programs um, on a regular basis that um, the cargo preference laws uh, allow us to participate in and give us, give us uh, some of that economic support so that we are um, operating at all times and ready to go when, when the ships are needed um, in times of crisis. Um, we're looking forward to the tanker security program being appropriated um, and um, that has uh, $60 million that has all, already been um, tagged to go to that program. Yep, for six, with 10 vessels, yes? Pretend that's all. Yeah, fantastic. Um, hey, John, I'll, I'll give a short commentary on the visa program, which is uh, utilized by uh, by Jones Act vessels. Um, there's no there's no stipend attached to that. In exchange for participating, uh, get a preferential access to DOD cargoes. I'll note that Tote during the Second Gulf War uh, had several of its vessels. Um, participate in support of the Gulf War un under that program. And so it's one that we, we've participated for some time. Great. Yeah, I, the visa program is often overlooked. I, I mean, uh, it's a great program. And um, uh, I've, I've seen it used before. <laughs> um, and, you know, a couple other things I just wanted to touch on since we're running low on time. Um, kind of outside the box topics that have come up for uh, US flag in particular. Uh, first, um, and uh, it, was, it was mentioned by um, Administrator Leslie earlier today during her presentation, that is, the new every mariner builds a respectful culture uh, uh, requirements of the of the Department of Transportation, um, all in light of news of of uh, recent sexual assaults on board U.S. flag vessels against uh, Merchant Marine Academy candidates. Um, what? Every Marine, every Mariner builds a respectful culture, also called Embark. Um, what is it? 
um, and and how is the Department of Defense, uh, Department of, of Transportation, looking to um, make uh, shipping a safer environment for all merchant mariners? Maybe Susan, you can. Yeah, give us your on that. it was it was initially, uh, or it, it there's a big focus of it on um, the cadet program, which as as we all know, you know, feeds our feeds and replenishes everything up the chain as we need our qualified mariners. But um, it will extend to benefit all of our seafarers um, as it's implemented. Um, the, it's also been paired with uh, legislation that's been introduced called the Improving Protections for Midshipmen Act that um, all, overall, the two programs, I, I believe, are going to strengthen the environment in which our mariners are working. It's going to make it safer. Um, it's going to, um, it recognizes the evolution of our, of our society issues uh, where uh, we want to make sure that sexual harassment is not present on our ships to anyone. Um, so it, that way it'll promote the health and safety and welfare of our, our mariners, which are key to all of our businesses. And if I understand it correctly, the, the uh, Embark program works in that before a U.S. flag operator can employ uh, students from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, they have to uh, adopt these policies, uh, so reporting, um, advocacy, uh, Things there's extra training, there's extra training so that people know how to react to a situation of sexual harassment or assault. And, and he wanted ease to it to both both these things is accountability and trying to change the culture so that uh, the harassment doesn't happen in the first place because there's uh, right now a lack of accountability in, in, in um, enforcing uh, issues where people have been uh, found to be viol in violation of any government's policy or laws. May I intervene to thank you all, John, if that's okay with you, because I think we are out of time. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you all. And thank you, Nicholas and, and Capital Link. It's been a good discussion. I really appreciate everyone jumping in and participating. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Matt. It's been, been wonderful hearing your views and uh, we look forward to hearing from you some more. Absolutely. And thank you from my side as well, tremendously for a great panel. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.